even, much to your surprise, find that you actually enjoy meeting with me. Uh, if you don't, then you can meet with Callie or Zinni, <laughs> and you'll definitely find them to be enjoyable. All right, uh, this semester we are studying the letter to the Galatians. It's Paul's brief letter to a, a number of believers and churches that he helped start in the southern region of Galatia. And uh, as we've talked about in the past, the, the churches have gone off the rails a little bit, and he is correcting them. He is reminding them of, uh, of what the gospel is all about, what Christianity is all about. And our, our little brief summary of that has been, for years, and I reiterate it weekly almost, that the gospel is not about being right or doing right, but how Jesus makes us right. That's what's going on here. That, that Paul is reminding them that ultimately it's not their behavior that, uh, that, that makes them right with God. It's what Jesus has done that makes them right. And last week we began to explore a little bit the benefits, that once you latch on to Jesus by faith, that you begin to derive the benefits of being connected to him. And last week that benefit was security. This week's benefit is identity. And uh, that might seem very abstract, but I'm convinced it's actually the question that you're asking that you don't know that you're asking. You're asking questions like, what do I want to be when I grow up? What should I study? Who are my people? Where should I go? And those questions are all threads of the one big life question, who am I? That is the question. Who are we? And uh, I think we'll be surprised how much uh, Paul has to give us on this. We're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 23, and read into chapter 4 a little bit. So, this is God's Word, chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Uh, Great Father, we are uh, in the midst of the busyness, and we are probably worn down and distracted. And uh, some of us wish we were home, and uh, some of us wish we were at some other school. And uh, some of us don't know where we wish we were. We just are not sure we want to be here right now. And this text seems very far away in language and in culture. And I pray you be kind to show us its goodness and what it means for each of us here and now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to take a trip with me. Let's consider this a field trip. We're going to take a field trip to a very uncomfortable place. A place of angst, a place of uh, suppression. We're taking a field trip to my elementary school cafeteria. Um, Appomattox Elementary School 
grades three through six, like any elementary school, should have been marked by children's laughter, joy, shrieks of delight, boys making odd noises to impress one another. But that's not at all how I remember elementary school, grades through six in Appomattox County Elementary School. Uh, instead, it felt like a childhood captivity. Upon the wall, there was a traffic light, an honest-to-goodness traffic light. Green, yellow, and red. Green, you could talk freely. You could enjoy yourselves. Yellow, you better watch it. And red, absolute silence and the threat of immediate punishment if you spoke. And that dreadful light was, was managed by the singular most terrifying personage I knew up to that point in my life. She was alien-like in her otherness. Truly terrifying. Never happy. Her name was Mrs. Nowlin. This week, recalling this, I actually reached out and reached back 30-plus years to a bunch of my schoolmates to make sure that I was accurate in my memories slash nightmares. And these are some of the comments I got. I remember thinking she was seven foot tall. (laughs) Someone else. She would clap her hands angrily, and it looked like her fingers would wrap around twice. And then she would point at you, and then she would point at the light, and she would scowl. And another one said, they spoke up during the red, and they were forced to sit by themselves alone in isolation. And then a parent spoke up, not like a parent like me, like we're all parents now, it was 35 years ago, but a parent of a child who was my age. And she wrote, I hated that light. I would come and visit my daughter, and my daughter would be afraid to talk to me during the visit. So, see what I mean? This was terrible, right? We're like prisoners under strict management. And that's no way to enjoy your childhood. It's, it's no way to grow. It's no place that you want to be, that you want to belong. The only way out was to have a parent come and rescue you and take you out to lunch. I don't think that ever happened to me. Or mercifully to graduate and grow out of there. Well, we find in chapter 3 and 4 of Galatians sort of a similar reality. Paul's talking about something like this. That under the law, apart from faith in Jesus, we lived in a strict oppressive captivity his language not mine under the management of a cruel guardian and he says this is no place to live this is no place to grow and that the answer if you live here to that who am i question is whether you like it or not you're a prisoner a despairing one the good news in our text and there's good news in our text is this that jesus the son was sent so that we, by faith, would become family. That's ultimately who God wants us to be, family. So today we're going to talk about this, and uh, this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to talk about what it means to be all locked up with nowhere to go and no way to grow. We'll talk about uh, belonging and its benefits, and then lastly we'll talk about the Father's love. Okay? But, But Paul confronts us with this harsh, undesirable reality That apart from Christ, under the law, I'll talk about what that means, we are all locked up with nowhere to go and no way to grow. He describes it here in verses 23 and 24, if you want to look at it up there, as being under discipline. 
held captive, imprisoned, and he calls the law, the law is both God's law, the Old Testament apart from faith, or any law that we use to apply to others that therefore binds our consciences as well. So Jews that didn't, you know, Jews had the Old Testament law, but ancient peoples apart from Judea, if they had a law for others and they didn't keep it themselves, they were held to that standard. And Paul says that law, apart from faith in Christ, imprisons you. It's a guardian. And the language guardian here is really unique. Actually, it's a particular role in the ancient world. It's not like the crossing guard to get you across the street. It's not like your legal guardian. This was a slave who was entrusted with keeping people, keeping children. Um, you know, more like an old British schoolmaster, but not actually interested in your education in any way. Just cruel <laughs> and mean. Their job was to keep you. Uh, not to instruct, not to care, but to keep you. They were not interested in your growth. And that's why Paul can say in verse 23 that you were held captive. That the law, in this way, functioned to do a couple things. Restrict you. Restrict you. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Yellow light, red light, all the time. <laughs> can't do that. And to point out repeatedly where you fail. That's what the law does. Points out over and over how you fail, holds you captive, and restricts you. Now, Paul says the law was not intended, I know this is deep theology, hang with me. Paul is saying the original intent of the law was not like this. That the law, as God gave it to his people, was meant to do something else. It was meant to show us how we don't measure up to drive us to Jesus. He says in verse 24, it was given in order that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law was given as a teacher to show us our need. I can't do this. I'm not very good at measuring up on my own. I need someone to come and help me. I need someone outside of me to save me because I can't do it on my own performance. That's what the law was for, to make clear that we need a rescuer and to drive us to faith in Jesus. But the school does not work. The school was hijacked. <laughs> it was hijacked by a couple of things. Our own desire to perform and, eh, I think, you know, you may not believe this, but the devil himself. Um, Paul here uh, in verse 3 talks about how we've become enslaved to elementary principles. And here he's talking about, I think, how we tend to trust in all kinds of other things besides God. It could be the constellations, the elements, the law itself. We'll put our faith in almost anything but God. And what I think he's pointing out is we will trust in almost anything but God to save us. And in the end, that is a performance trap. That is a, as a performance trap, and we have the cruelest of masters overseeing us. And one theologian summed it up like this. God intended for the law, God's rules, to reveal our need, our sin, and to drive us to Jesus. But the devil has used it to reveal our sin and to drive us to despair. Okay? God intended the law to be a stepping stone to our liberty, Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac to keep us in bondage. All right, let me give you an example from your childhood. I know it seems impossible. <laughs> Here we go. Some of you remember this. Uh, in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, young Harry Potter discovers the mirror of Erised. Remember this? And in it, this young orphan sees his beautiful young mother, and his smiling, loving father. Do you remember this scene? No. 
Some of you are like, my parents wouldn't let me see that. Let's come to me and we'll, we'll talk about this. We'll do group therapy together. And uh, though, you, though he can't feel them, he can see in the mirror their affection for him. And so he keeps returning to the mirror over and over and over. And one night, uh, Dumbledore finds him there and says, gently, reprovingly, back again, Harry. I see that you, like so many, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Erised. I trust you realize what it does. Harry replies, it shows us whatever we want. And Dumbledore says, yes and no. It shows us nothing more or less than our deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts. And you, Harry, who've never known your family, you see them standing beside you. Here's the kicker. But Harry, this mirror gives us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away in front of it and even gone mad. Last week I referred to the law as a mirror and lots of other pastors and theologians have said the same thing. The law is a mirror of sorts. It doesn't show you what you most desire. It shows you what you lack. It shows you how you fall short. It shows you how you fail. And yet, we often still sit in front of it and believe if we work hard enough, we'll grow up, we'll measure up, we'll appease our master. But you need to know that like Harry's mirror, this mirror has no power whatsoever to change you. None whatsoever. You you cannot look to it, which is to look to yourself, and expect to grow. I'm not just talking about the law. Any kind of performance trap you're on, friends, any kind of standard that you keep looking to and trying to perform up to, it is a trap. You can't gaze at your lack and expect to grow. And if you tend to think, therefore, of God, just like, how do you think of God? If your idea of God is the seven-foot scary Miss Nolan controlling the cafeteria, flipping on the lights all the time, then I'm telling you, friends, you're actually not looking at Jesus. You're not. What you're looking at is yourself in the mirror. You're looking at your failures, your failed performance, and you're not looking at Jesus. And that is what Paul calls captivity. And that, friends, is the way to despair. But our text tells us what it looks like to look to Jesus. And it's beautiful. It's great. It looks like belonging and all its benefits. And the first thing we see about belonging in verse 25, good news, you're no longer under your guardian. You're out. You're out of the cafeteria. You're out from her tyrannical reign. I don't ever have to think about that scary seven-foot lady again in my life. Actually, I hadn't thought about it for 30 years. Hope I forget about her soon. Uh, you're free. You're free. The first benefit of belonging to Jesus is you no longer live under this captive rule of performance. But we're not going to talk about that much this week. We're going to talk about freedom more next week. We're going to talk about belonging. And, and Paul goes right there in verse 26, that if you're in Christ, if you trust in him, you're all sons of God through faith. And he says in verse 5 that this is God's goal all along, to redeem us that we might receive adoption. Redeem means to buy back. And this is the language of economy. You would buy a slave to set them free. And what we're seeing here is that God's heart, God's desire, God's plan 
was to set you free, not so you can go do whatever you want or be whoever you want, but to be his child. Not to put you on probation so if you behave very well, then you might be his child. No, you become his beloved child right then and there. He wants you as part of the family. He wants to bring you in. And in verse 27, we sort of get an idea of what this looks like. It's this really curious language about as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Here's what he's saying, I think. I'll do this quickly. Baptism is supposed to be an external sign of an internal reality. If you've been baptized, that's what it means. It means, just like the water was poured over you, that you've been cleansed and sprinkled by the blood of one that cleanses you, that makes you right. And that's lovely. It means you've been united. That's what the symbol means. You've been united to Jesus by faith, and you get the benefits of that. Well, the outside's supposed to match the inside. And what's, what, what Paul is saying here is, if you've been baptized, then you've been united to Jesus by faith, and what's happened is he's gotten your losses. He died for your sins. You've gotten his wins. You have his record. You are on his team already. You're united to him by loyalty. You're part of Team Jesus in your heart. And baptism is, you get the uniform. It's taking the external sign. I wear the external uniform of Jesus. Like, every day, I've been baptized. I, I, I remember because I've been baptized. I'm part of Team Jesus. And it's a way of showing the whole world. When you go through this, I've, I've joined another team. I don't live for myself anymore. I live for him. I belong to him. That's what's going on with baptism here. But Paul just mentions that. What he really highlights is all the benefits of belonging to this team. And there's a lot of them. And I'm just going to have to run through them really quickly. But family membership has its advantages. And in verses 28 and 29, he gives us a quick overview. First of all, we belong to a loving father. We have a loving father. If you've never had a loving father, you do now. If you have a father that loves you but can't say it, this father says it regularly. This father, God the Father, he wants you. And because when God brings people to himself through Jesus, he doesn't just redeem them, but he adopts them, you have a big family. You have a remarkable family. In verses 28 and 29, he says, everyone that's put on Christ uh, belongs. Then he goes on, and this is pretty radical. You might think this is boring. This is crazy, friends. No one wrote like this 2,000 years ago. People still don't believe this today. Verses 28 and 29. This description of this remarkable, beautiful family of Jesus. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ. And, and what Paul is saying here is he's not saying that faith in Jesus abolishes distinctions. But he's saying that faith in Christ means that all of us, with our beautiful distinctives, are no longer allowed to use the distinctives to divide one another or hold others in derision. We're all alike in our need. We all desperately need someone to forgive us and rescue us. We're all, if we're part of this family, saved by the life and death of Jesus. We all belong to the same Father. We're all part of the same family. And uh, it's the biggest, most beautiful, diverse family there's ever been. That's, you belong to a, a broad, beautiful family. Uh, he brings up in verse 29 that that family stretches back in history. Uh, if you're like me, and you, you like someone in your family did this genealogy, and you're like, I'm the great-grandson of, of Andrew Carnegie, and I've got a million in stock. Good for you. But if you're like me, uh, you look at your genealogy, and you're like, I'm from six generations of poor Virginia sharecroppers. And uh, they were all ignorant, poor rednecks. Um, 
you know, I'm sure they're well-intentioned in their, in their drinking and farming and probably in their incest. I hope not. But anyway, the, uh, just being, that's Buckingham County. Anyway, um, you know, sometimes you would be ashamed of your family. But, but this family, you're part of Abraham's family. It's a remarkable family, stretching back generations. And, and you stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And he goes on to say, not only is your past remarkable because of that, and your family broad and beautiful, but your future is secure. You're an heir. You're an heir. You actually have a promised treasury awaiting you. You didn't earn it, but you're part of the family now. You're written into the will of the Father. You get part of the Father's glory and the Son's glory and treasury. It's yours. It's yours. You don't know what the future holds for you, as in like the next 30, 40 years, but you're an heir for sure. Uh... I heard this illustration from a friend of mine, Paul Boyd, recently. It's a funny one. Uh, on July 23rd of this year, at Six Flags over Georgia, a young mother gave birth. And as a result, uh, her newborn son, whom she named Matthew, she should have named him like Hurricane Harbor or something, um, but she named him Matthew. Good restraint there. Uh, Matthew now enjoys... Diamond Elite membership at any Six Flags in the world for the rest of his life. Rest of his life. Free visits, free parking, free drinks, front of the line, forever. Right? Right? Uh, you know, in, in some ways it's because Matthew born there, I mean, it's good publicity for Six Flags, but Matthew born there, he's sort of like an adopted son of Six Flags. And he gets all the benefits. Of six flags everywhere for the rest of his life, right? It's pretty cool. If we've been adopted into the family of Jesus by trusting in Jesus, then no matter what you feel to be true, you belong to a loving Father, and you have all the benefits of belonging. All the benefits. And in your quest to answer the who am I question, and again, you might not be answer, asking that, but you're asking tertiary questions like, what should I do? Or, Who do I belong with? Or, Where should I go? Do not discount how important this is. Don't overlook how much you already know and have. Who are you? You're a beloved child of the Father. And you wear the uniform of the risen from the dead Son of God. That's huge, friends. With whom do you belong? You already have a remarkable, beautiful, diverse family. Wherever you go, you can find people like you who trust in Jesus and love him and want to walk in his ways and love his neighbor. You have a big, beautiful family, more diverse and radical and beautiful than any other. And where are you going? Again, I don't know your next steps, but I know that if you trust Jesus, you're an heir. Your eternal future is secure. You are rich beyond your imagination. Now the question, the remaining question is how? How? If, I, if, I, if you're telling me I, I'm used to living in this captivity and sometimes I feel like I'm in this performance trap and there's this promise of belonging and all its benefits, how do I go from one to the other? How do we come to belong? And the answer, briefly, 
is the Father's love. There's a very common, very mistaken notion that the Bible breaks down into an angry God the Father and a very loving Jesus that smooths everything over. And uh, that's not true. It's not true actually anywhere in the Bible. Uh, and Instead, what's really clear is that Father, Son, and Spirit from the beginning love their people and devise a plan how to save them and bring them home. But in this text in particular, it's really clear how much the Father loves his children. He sends his Son. That's what verses 4 and 5 say, chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption. So out of love, God the Father sent his Son. That was the plan. And Jesus comes. And we know it's costly for Jesus. He had to do the things it says here. He had to do the things that we do. It entails suffering. He had to endure the same kind of captivity we do. We're captive to human weakness. Who's tired? Who's gotten sick in the last month? Who's stressed and worried? He endured those things as part of being a human, born under woman, but also under the law, like us. Only he fulfilled it perfectly. But it was still difficult. Jesus enters our experience, endures the same captivity, suffers our punishment, and he does it to secure our salvation. He does all that to secure our salvation, to redeem us, okay? Here's a story. I don't know if it's true or not. It makes the point regardless. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, told this story, which makes me think it's probably true. Anyway. It's illustrative regardless of its veracity. Here we go. Years ago, in the Middle East, there were two men arguing. One struck the other and killed him accidentally. That man fled many miles away to the tribal chief's tent, and there he sought asylum. The chief gave it to him and promised his protection. This was the custom. There's actually something very much like this in the Old Testament. Cities of refuge That's what they're called. And eventually a delegation came seeking that young man's life. When they arrived at the chief's tent, they demanded justice be done. But the chief declared this man was under his protection. No harm would befall him. Someone from the delegation spoke. But you don't understand. They killed your son. The chief was struck. He studied himself like he'd been sucker punched. Everyone wondered, what would he do? And finally he spoke and he said, Then this man will become my son. If that seems completely outrageous to you, that's exactly what happens in the Bible. That's the story of Scripture, friends. That Jesus did this by redeeming us through his life and death. Lived and died for us. Take our place. And this is a picture of God the Father's love. He brought us into his family at this great cost. He gave his son for us. It's the Father's love, friends. And as we've talked about all semester, friends, this is yours by faith. You don't earn it. It's by faith. When you trust in him, that price paid by Jesus, when you take shelter in the Father's tent, you belong. It's not the only thing that God the Father does. 
One more thing. The Father sends His Son. We also see in this text that He sends His Spirit. Verses 6 and 7. They read, Because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. I love this text because I think it says a couple things to us. One, that we are so stubbornly stuck in our performing ways that we actually need God inside of us, constantly reminding us that we actually belong to the Father before we actually believe we belong to the Father. That's what we're like, friends. We've got the seven-foot-tall seven alien version, always angry version of God in our heads. And some of you that have very angry, distant fathers, it's particularly hard, perhaps, for you to imagine God as being anything but angry with you. The Father loves His children. And He puts the Spirit in the hearts of them to work in us and remind us and whisper to us over and over, He's your Father. He loves you. You are His. He is yours. I belong to the Father. He loves me dearly. He loves me forever. I don't know how you are going about answering your who am I, what should I do, with whom do I belong, what's my future look like. Nest of messy questions. But I would love for you to start by wrestling with this a little bit more. That God the Father loves you so much, He sent His Son and sends His Spirit to establish firmly your identity. You are a beloved child of the Father with all the benefits of belonging. Those don't mean something a long time from now. They mean something right now. All right, let's pray. Lord, we